today, we're going to take a look at the book of Micah. Um, in our survey, we're moving through uh, the minor prophets, and um, boy, the news helped me out yesterday. Let me ask you this question. Is the Bible relevant for today? You think it is? Um, yesterday, this happened. There was an attack on Israel, people opposing Israel, um, and uh, a response that came as this area, as Israel is, is surrounded by countries that, that don't like it and are attacking it from the Gaza Strip. Um, there's another area uh, that's called the West Bank that is um, occupied by Palestinians, those two areas um, w- within Israel. And there's opposition, um, not, not only from just those areas where the Palestinians are, but all around Israel. And, and Israel has a response they are responding, and they never respond in a measured way. They always respond in a, in a very significant way. And if you'll pay attention to the news, the, the group that is specifically attacking from the Palestinian community, um, that group is called Hamas. Three weeks ago, I was preaching through Obadiah, and I highlighted this verse. Verse number 10 in Obadiah says, "'Because of the violence against your brother Jacob,' You will be covered with shame and you will be destroyed forever. The word for violence there is the word Hamas. Now, if you are part of the Palestinian group that's trying to resist the occupation of their land as they see it, um, Hamas is an acronym in Arabic that means Islamic Resistance Movement. But it is not um, lost on the Israelis that they happen to choose the three letters that spell the word violence. Um, but I do have um, something to, to share with you about the relevance of, of this. I mean, three weeks ago, I highlighted Hamas, and now it's in the news. There's opposition against Israel. They're responding back. But the Israeli response is not the solution to all of this. The solution is what we will see in Micah. It is the arrival of the shepherd king who will establish a rule of peace. Jesus Christ is the solution, not our American partnership with Israel, not Israel's response, not their fantastic iron dome that they may have. The only solution to this is what we will find in the book of Micah. And the book of Micah is just setting forth the pattern that Israel is going to be opposed and will continue to be opposed until Christ comes. And and I believe that, that the church has not replaced Israel in God's plan. God is using the church because I believe that in some way Israel failed to be the witness to the world that it should be. God is now using the church to get the message of the gospel around the world. He's called us to do that. And when the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, then he will begin to work with Israel one more time. So I believe all of this is very, very relevant. Um, In in talking about Micah, here's how um, Danny Hayes puts this all together. He says this, Micah cries out for justice in the land. He is particularly critical of Israel's leaders and their lack of justice. Therefore, Micah declares due to the lack of justice and due to pervasive idolatry in Israel and Judah, the judgment of God is coming. And he's talking about the Assyrian invasions and the Babylonian invasion. However, Micah also looks into the future and declares a glorious time when God will send a deliverer and restore his people. So let me be clear. Israel today is not a believing country. (laughs) Today, Israel 
um, does not accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. They are not worshiping the Lord the way they should. So we shouldn't be surprised that there are people opposing it and that God even has his hand in that. But God does declare that there will be a time, and like I've explained many, many times, um, these prophecies skip through time. Um, The opposition skips through time until the final opposition comes. And the deliverance that that, um, God brings is going to skip through time until the final deliverance comes. And I believe that final deliverance is still ahead for us. And so Micah is, is, is a very interesting book. Um, I've titled it Oracles of Doom and Hope um, because it really does kind of go back from judgment to hope, judgment to hope, judgment to hope. It's very clear. He's very articulate with his messages of doom. It sounds very overwhelming. And yet, he, after every message of doom, gives a little snippet of hope. It reminds me very much of when in 1997 I was uh, in Russia for about three weeks for a mission trip. I was teaching at a Bible college over there. And while we were there, um, in the evenings, in the afternoons, we had the opportunity to do a lot of things in Moscow. Uh, We traveled to St. Petersburg uh, one weekend, and we went to see um, the, the Hermitage Museum, which is the museum where all of the artwork that the Russians stole in World War II from all the other countries, all of that artwork is in the Hermitage. Um, but in Moscow, there is a museum called the Tretikov. And the Tretikov is where Russian art is. We had a uh, translator who worked with us. His name was Sergei. Um, I will tell you really quickly, there was another translator who, uh, Sergey was my translator, there was another translator that worked with my brother who was there as well, and he had learned his English, he was Russian, he had learned his English from a guy from Mississippi. And so it was really weird to him, you know, hear him translating, he's translating all day, and then he'd go, hey, where do you guys want to go to dinner tonight? It's like, are you mocking us? Um, but he had, that's how he had learned his English. Um, but our, our guide, Sergey. Um, was an engineer um, in, in Russia, and um, as an engineer before the fall of, of, uh, of communism there and before the, the breakup of the Soviet Union, um, as an engineer, he just was part of the working class, but he was highly trained. Um, w- when communism fell and the USS, USSR broke apart, um, he was now an elevator operator and a translator. That's, that's what he did for a living. Um, but he loved his country. And as we walked into the Tretikoff, he said, we're not going to walk through this museum in the order that the rooms show. He said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you through this um, museum, and we're going to move from room to room because I want to take you through um, chronologically. I'm going to show you artwork and, and move through chronologically. And it was a fantastic tour because he was basically able to say, here's what was going on in my country, and you can see it depicted. You can see the mood of that in the artwork. What they're, what they're displaying was just fantastic. And then we came to this picture, and I remember it so clearly. Um, we came to this picture, and he just stood there. And we're thinking, okay, what, what do we do? We're, we're looking at this painting, and usually you're talking by now, and you're not talking. And uh, I said, what, 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 what's going on in this painting? He simply said this, there is always hope. These are some whalers who have 
run aground in a storm, and they're um, in their lifeboats. The storm is raging around them. But if you'll see, the, the title of the painting is The Rainbow. Um, real subtly, you can see there's a rainbow. And what he said was, with almost a tear in his eye, I think, there is always hope. And I think that's the message of, Obed, of Micah. <laughs> yes, there's doom. Yes, there's judgment. Yes, there's going to be conflict. Yes, we're going to see stories in um, the news that are going to unsettle us and make us go, oh gosh, is this the end time? And maybe it is, maybe it's not. I don't know. Um, in, in one way, I feel like what happened yesterday actually moves us back in terms of setting up end times events, but that's for another time. There's always hope. Um, I've got some resources out there at the Connection Center. I'm going to highlight one of them. There's a historical background one. There's one on um, uh, word plays in Micah, and then there's uh, another one that deals with just the entire message of Micah and putting it together. Here's what Bruce Wilkinson says for the whole book. Micah prophesied during a period of intense social injustice in Judah. False prophets preached for riches, not for righteousness. Princes thrived on cruelty, violence, and corruption. Priests ministered more for greed than for God. Landlords stole from the poor and evicted widows. Judges lusted after bribes. Businessmen used unequal scales and weights. Sin had infiltrated every segment of society. A word from God was mandatory. You think this is relevant for us today? Micah enumerated the sins of the nation, sins which will ultimately lead to destruction and captivity. But in the midst of darkness, there is hope. A divine deliverer will appear and righteousness will prevail. Though justice is now trampled, trampled underfoot, it will one day triumph. That's the message of Micah. Let me just remind you and give you a little bit of setting. There's a period of time uh, that's about 120 years where Israel is united as a kingdom. After the reign of Solomon, they divide into two kingdoms. There's one in the north and one in the south. We've addressed a number of prophets recently that are uh, working in the north. Um, and that their prophecies come to an end when they are fulfilled, when the Assyrians in 722 B.C. Um, obliterate the northern kingdom of Israel. In 586, Babylon is going to come in and they're going to take captive the southern kingdom. Micah is a prophet to this southern kingdom, but let me set him up for you. He's, he's a pre-exilic prophet before 722 and 586. He's prophesying before that, one of the pre-exilic prophets. And if you'll notice, his date is 735. So this judgment that's coming in 722, he's going to be a witness to. And he's also going to be a witness of the Babylonians who are going to, in 701, they're going to invade and they're going to almost capture Jerusalem um, under the leadership of Sennacherib. But Hezekiah, the Judean king, he's going to pray to the Lord and the Lord's going to turn back that invasion. So he's going to see two invasions, one that obliterates the north and he's going to see one that comes into the south. Interestingly, he's a contemporary of Isaiah. I'm going to put that together for you. Isaiah is basically um, a prophet in the court, and Micah is the prophet of the people. He's in the country, okay? So he's a country preacher. That's who he is. He's also a contemporary of Amos and Jonah and Hosea. These five guys, um, the eighth century prophets, are a, 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 a movement of God that's almost unprecedented 
for God to have this many prophets in one particular time. And it's really interesting. I'm going to try to highlight why I think that's true. Um, So let's talk about who's doing this, when it was, where they were, and why all of this is put together. Who composed Micah? Micah seems to have been a man of the people. Unlike Isaiah, who had access to the royal court, Micah preaches in the countryside. He lived south of Jerusalem in the hills and was a powerful, creative preacher. I'm going to highlight that for you. This guy is awesome. (laughs) How he presents his message is powerful, creative, very fascinating. He's a model of the prophetic role, and his message is a model of the prophetic task. He does what prophets do. He speaks the word of the Lord. He Um, is not liked by the people. They think he's not patriotic. They want to give false prophecies that say, no, no, it's all going to be okay. And he says, no, it's not going to be okay. There's judgment coming. But he's also a model of the prophetic task. He's going to stick at the message of judgment, but he's also going to give, but we can look forward to this time when God is going to make all of his promises come true. Mike also seems to have been very well known. Nearly 100 years after he preached, his words are quoted by Jeremiah. So one of the other prophets, 100 years later, in the south, he's going to quote Micah. In the New Testament, when the Magi arrive in Jerusalem, the words of Micah 5.2 are used to locate the birthplace of Messiah in Bethlehem. He's a very well-known prophet. 100 years after him and 800 years after him, people really know what's going on in his um, prophecies. So it's one of those prophecies that you probably shouldn't ignore. It's only seven chapters. You should get really used to it because it is so clear in its message of judgment and hope. And it presents some things that are really fascinating and helpful for us to know. Micah is a creative and powerful preacher. Micah's messages include clear condemnation, creative wordplays, bold imagery, consistent structure, and encouraging hope. His presentation of the Messiah and his rule are clear and to the point. I'm trying to let you know Micah's a great book, okay? Get familiar with Micah, and all the other prophets will kind of be like this in some way. He's kind of the paradigmatic prophet who presents the messages that all of the other prophets are going to present. Who's the audience? Micah's a preacher in the southern kingdom of Judah, so he's not up in the north. However, his messages include warnings and prophecies for both Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Ultimately, his presentation of hope through the nation's shepherd king established a righteous and peaceful rule. That's for everyone. So he's, he's living in the south, prophesying uh, to those people, but his messages reach to the north and the south, but his messages are for us as well, because as the rocks of judgment skip through history, ultimately our only hope is the shepherd king that he's going to talk about. When was Micah written? Micah prophesied during the reigns of, and this is in verse number one, in the reigns of the Judean kings, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. This is the same time of Isaiah when he was preaching in the southern kingdom, and Amos and Hosea preaching in the northern kingdom of Israel. These were years of economic affluence and internal international peace for both kingdoms, but rapid spiritual decline as well. Once again, I ask the question, is this relevant for us? (laughs) Affluence and yet rapid moral decline. Micah would have witnessed the fall of the northern kingdom to Assyria in 722. He also lived through the invasion of Judah by the Assyrians under King Sennacherib in 701 that I already mentioned when Hezekiah is the one who is going to pray to the Lord as uh, the uh, Assyrian army is in the outskirts of Jerusalem and God is going to send an angel to thwart that invasion. Where'd all this happen? Well, um, you've got the Babylonians who were there on the 
um, bottom right-hand corner of that map, the Assyrians who are just north of that, and all of them are invading. And as I mentioned again and again, it's not because Israel is so important, but Israel is the pathway to get to Egypt. And uh, Egypt was always the competitive world power, uh, whether the other world power was Assyria or Persia or Babylon. Uh, And you can't go straight across because that's a, a big desert. Why was Micah written? Perhaps more than any other prophet, Micah balances both judgment and hope. His message, which ultimately focuses on the coming of the shepherd king who will regather the Jewish nation, rule over all nations in peace, is an encouragement to the righteous remnant in Judah and provides clear hope for all people. Again, it's not um, the Israelis' response or their ability to protect themselves that will solve any of this. It's not our partnership or the alliance and condemnation of world rulers of Hamas's um, attack. Um, the only hope, the only solution, is the second coming of the shepherd king who came in his first coming to redeem us. And he will come the second time to fulfill all of the prophecies that are in this book to establish a kingdom that will rule in peace forever. So let's look at how all this is put together. It's a really simple structure. There are three movements, three what we call oracles, and each oracle has a judgment and a hope. Then a judgment and a hope, a judgment and a hope. Um, I've tried to put all this together. More clearly than any other prophet, um, Micah is going to make clear Assyria is going to do the job And then Babylon is going to do the job. And Judah, you're going to go away captive to Babylon, but you will come back. I'll make that really clear. And then he's going to say in one of his messages of hope, a famous verse that we are very familiar with, but we stop with location and we don't get to the function of the one who's born in Bethlehem. And I want to show it to you in Micah today. What's the message of Micah? Micah prophesying in the countryside while Isaiah was in the royal court, through a series of oracles abruptly moving from judgment to blessing, declared with intricate word plays and creativity that even though Judah will go into captivity in Babylon for not living under the covenant, they will be brought back under a shepherd king as a forgiven remnant in a kingdom displaying God's prevailing purpose and faithfulness in order to encourage the righteous remnant to continue to live righteously. And that's the message for us today too continue to live righteously in the midst of the affluent culture that we are that's in rapid decline, it's really clear that God wants us to live righteously as a witness for him as we wait for the Messiah to come and set everything right. Listen to some of this. I'm just going to move through. It's in cycles, so I could do this, I could do this again and again in the book. But in chapter one, he says this, look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. By the way, that's not a good thing at this point. (laughs) He comes down and treads on the heights of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him and the valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. Oh my word, this is a terrifying image. This guy's such a powerful preacher. All this because of Jacob's transgressions, because of the sins of the people of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? That's the capital of the Northern kingdom. What is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem, capital of Judah? He's basically saying, your capital is the center of sin. And in the south, where the temple is, that's the center of your sin. Your religion itself, as Amos said just last week, your religion, or two weeks ago, your religion itself is a stench in the nostrils of God. Now, he's going to use a variety of word plays. Robert Chisholm has an entire article. If you want a long article on these word plays in the 8th century prophets, 
um, I haven't got it out at the Connection Center. Um, email me, I'll, I'll send you the, the article. A variety of literary and rhetorical devices fill the writings of the Old Testament prophets, lending vividness and emotion to the powerful messages. Through these devices, the prophet often expresses their theological themes. One of the most common techniques they employ was wordplay. The problem is these wordplays are in Hebrew, okay? Now, what he's doing is he's playing on the words of the names of the towns. So I'm going to put this together in the best way that I can to kind of translate the Hebrew wordplays into English. I do have one short article that tries to explain it. It's pretty complex. I'm giving you the summary of what this all looks like. Word plays in Micah 10 through 12. Um, he says this, um, tell it not in Tellington. That, that's what he's, he's basically saying. Let me, let me sh- the, the verse says this, tell it not in Gath, weep not at all. In Beth Ophrah, roll in dust. Well, Gath means tell. Ophrah means dust. So tell it not in Tellington, well not in Wailing. Dust manor will eat dirt. <laughs> Dressy town will flee naked. He's going to say, this town that means beautiful, you're going to walk away in shame. Um, safe fold will not be safe. Walchester walls are down. A bitter dose drinks bitterton. <laughs> Chariotville, <laughs> get in your chariots to flee. He talks about Latius, which is where the kings kept their, their army. All of the horses and the chariots were kept in Latius outside of, of Jerusalem. And he's going to say, in Latius, where the chariots are, where the kings gather them so that they can ride out to, to war, get on your chariot and flee because the invasion is coming. He's so creative in what he's doing. It's amazing. And it's all because there's injustice in the land. Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light, they carry it out because it is in their power to do it. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them. They defraud people of their homes. They rob them of their inheritance. People are plotting how they can take advantage of other people. And these are the powerful people in the land who have the opportunity to do it. They plan it at night, and because they're powerful and can do it, they do it in the day. And they're just making themselves more and more wealthy rather than doing what God has asked them to do. And that is take care of poor people around you. Take care of the needy people. If God's given you resources, never in scripture does God give us resources to use to gratify ourselves. God always blesses you to be a blessing to other people. So you think about what you're doing with your resources and the blessings that God has given you. And all of this results in talionic justice. Talionic justice means eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And essentially what God is going to say is, if you're gathering a bunch of possessions, I'm going to take them away from you. (laughs) If you're proud, I'm going to humiliate you. If you're greedy, I'm going to send a greedy people who are going to take you over. Therefore, the Lord says, I'm planning disaster against this people from which you cannot save yourselves. You will no longer walk proudly, for it will be a time of calamity. In that day, people will ridicule you. They will taunt you with this mournful song. We are utterly ruined. My people's possession is divided up. He takes it from me. He assigns our fields to traitors. Therefore, you will have no one in the assembly of the Lord to divide the land by lot. (laughs) You're walking proudly, and now they're going to taunt you. You're gathering all these possessions, and you're taking them um, uh, unjustly. God's going to take them away and you're not going to get them back. And then the leadership, and this is where the, the, the finger points at me. 
If a liar deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, that will be just the prophet for you people. (laughs) The prophets are going, hey, I'll say what you want if you pay me right. If I can get wealthy doing this, I'll tickle your ears. I won't send them, I won't bring a message that's harsh and judgmental. You give me the right stuff, um, okay, I'll say the things that make you happy. I'll prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer. Th- those, are, those are the people, those, that's who the people want. Everything is going to be okay. We're all, all this applies to other people, not us. Scripture never allows us to do that. But the hope, here's the hope. Regathered by the Lord. I will surely gather all of you, Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in a pasture. The, the place will throng with people. The one who breaks open, they will, uh, the, the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through them uh, before the king will pass before them, the Lord at their head. The Lord is going to gather them and he will be the head of that, that, that kingdom. By the way, this is what Israel's hope really is, is for the Lord to come back, gather them together, and for him to be the king. He's not the king. They're trusting in the Israeli defense force, the Iron Dome. That's where their trust is right now. God will break all of that down and bring them back until the king will pass through before them and the Lord will be at their head. And they have lousy leaders. I've got too many slides on this. It's really frightening to me. Listen, you leaders of Jacob, you people, you rulers of Israel, should you not embrace justice, you who hate good and love evil, who tear the skin from my people and flesh from their bones, who eat my people's flesh, strip off their skin and break their bones in pieces, who chop them up like meat for the pain, like flesh for the pot. I don't know if the image here is of a butcher or a cannibal, but it's not good. The leaders are taking advantage of the people. Again, I'm asking you, is this relevant for today? Leaders who are taking advantage of people for their own benefit. As for the prophets who lead my people astray, they proclaim peace. If you have something to eat, but, pre- but prepare for, uh, to wage war against anyone who refuses to feed them. He basically says this, <laughs> there's going to be peace. But if you don't give me what I want, I'm going to tell you a bad message. Hear this, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, who despise justice and distort all that is right, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with wickedness. You're building this nation. It is the most affluent time after Solomon that the nation ever experiences under Hezekiah in the south and Jeroboam the second in the north. The most affluent time the nation ever experiences. Her leaders judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price, and her prophets tell fortunes for money. Oh, my word. Yet they look for the Lord's support and say, is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. You're fine. Nothing's going to happen here. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. The temple hill, a mound overgrown through thickets. I don't know how many times this rock is going to skip. I just know a few times I've already seen three times in history where this has happened to Jerusalem. Maybe it's going to happen only one other time. Maybe it's going to happen more times. 
I just saw a little glimmer of this on the news yesterday when Dawn said, as I was doing yard work, because it was a glorious day, thank God for fall. And she said, you need to look at the news. <laughs> Bombs. <laughs> the nation uh, being attacked. Micah's really clear, though. Listen to this. Writhe in agony, daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you must leave the city to camp in the open field. You will go to Babylon, therefore you, there you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you out of the hands of your enemies. That's very clear. He's going to judge them, then he's going to rescue them. By the way, this prophecy was fulfilled, so we know we can trust all the things that Micah is going to say. And in Micah 5.2, this is what we read. This is our famous verse in Micah, okay? But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from of ancient times. And what we do with that passage is, appropriately, we locate the birth of Messiah in Bethlehem. And that happens. When the Magi come, they say, where's this guy going to be born? They go to this passage and they say, looks like Micah said he's going to be born in Bethlehem. They go to Bethlehem, they find, the Magi find him. But the verse doesn't stop there. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. Christ is going to come. He's going to regather them. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach out to the ends of the earth. That hasn't happened yet, by the way. That's yet to be fulfilled when, when Christ will, will come and he will shepherd them, regather them, and then he will rule and his rule will go through the ends of the earth. And he will be our peace. Kevin mentioned this. Our hope is a person, not a plan. He will be our peace when the Assyrians invade our land and march through our fortresses. He will be our peace. Now, I've got something to say as we move into Micah 6. We've got two chapters left. Micah 6 is a very uncomfortable chapter, Alan Ross says. We don't like it. Nevertheless, we have to deal with it because it doesn't simply speak to Micah's audience. It speaks to our world as well. A world characterized by greed, selfish ambition, deceit, and oppression. <laughs> it's funny. He said, okay, you can leave now if you want. A world characterized by greed, selfish ambition, deceit, and oppression. Does the Bible have anything to say to our world today? Unfortunately, this circle sometimes draws around us, around you and I, and how we view our world. He has told you, O oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God. Here's how clear it is. He's told you what he's required. Before this, they're asking, how many sacrifices do you want? A thousand bulls? And he said, no, I don't want all those sacrifices. He has told you, every one of you, what the Lord requires of you, to do justice. That's not just, okay, be a fan of justice. It's a very active word. Go out and pursue justice. Do justice. Love kindness. Love chesed. Loyal love. Being faithful and, and, and offering the kind of hesed love that God gives us that we don't earn, but he gives out of his resources to help us. Give out of your resources to help others. Love doing that kind of stuff. And walk humbly with your Lord. It's pretty clear. 
He's told us what he's required of us. He's required of them. He requires of us. Do justice. Love kindness. Walk humbly with your Lord. It's not about your show. It's about your life. And we can count on God. I love this in chapter 7. This is right at the end of the book. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgressions of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. There's judgment, but there's hope. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Not us, but our sins. You will be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our ancestors in the days long ago. You said you're going to take care of this, and you will. So where do we go with all this? (laughs) Boy, what a clear, creative, and convicting message. Micah's a prophet who connects with the people in the countryside. He's one of them. Micah's a powerful and creative preacher. He's quoted by other prophets, well-known in the New Testament, and he provides a clear message that's a model of the prophetic role and a message that is judgment is followed by hope. God has to get our attention. What should we believe? Leaders are particularly accountable for their spiritual influence. And you lead somebody. I lead this congregation and I will stand accountable before the Lord as to whether we are doing justice, loving kindness, walking humbly before our Lord, and following the commission that he's given us. I'll stand accountable one day. And I won't take a bribe. I'm going to tell you the truth. It's pretty clear. Live for God and participate in the Great Commission. That's what, that's what we need to do. God's justice is often talionic. <laughs> what, you're, what you're trying to get, he's going to take away. Judgment recede, precedes restoration. And who is a God like God? There's no other God like him. He's always faithful even when we are not. So how should we behave? It's pretty simple. I, don't, I just quote the verse. He's told us what is good. And he told us what the Lord requires of us. So how should we behave? Do justice. Love kindness. Walk humbly with the Lord. Three next steps. Take your leadership role seriously, no matter what it may be. If you're leading your family, if you're leading your children, you're leading your grandchildren, you're leading a Sunday school class, a small group, whatever you're leading, people at work that you lead, Take that role seriously. And then I'm going to encourage you, meditate on the mercy of God. Yes, this book is full of judgment and doom, but it ends by turning our our eyes towards the mercy of God. And then finally, live with integrity. Love kindness. Walk humbly with the Lord. It's not a a hard message to land. (laughs) This message is so clear, so paradigmatic. Father, we thank you for the power of your word. Your word is relevant. It is clear. And Lord, I pray that it would be convicting for me, a leader and a shepherd, an under-shepherd of your flock. Father, your word is absolutely pointed in letting us know that there is no hope that we have other 
than our shepherd king who came and demonstrated his love toward us. While we were sinners, he died for us and proved that he could do what he said he could do by his resurrection. And what he said he's going to do is come back and set everything right. And that's our hope. Keep our hope there. And let us live righteously for you until he returns. I pray that in Christ's name. Amen.